0: in the name of Overhead Athletics Podcast, where we cover rehabilitation, biomechanics, human movement, and optimizing human performance. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Max Wardell. I'm going to be your host today. I have a very special guest. He's a strength and conditioning coach. He works with professional athletes, MLB players, minor league players. He also works with youth athletes. Jeff Krushel, he's a certified strength and conditioning specialist, went to University of Calgary. He's been a strength and conditioning coach for the Toronto Blue Jays, as well as other professional sporting organizations and teams. Welcome to the podcast, Jeff, or as people like to call you, Crush.
1: Yeah, I know that's quite fine. Yeah, no problem there. Hey, Happy uh, belated 4th of July in Canada Day to everybody out there. It's a good time of the year right now.
0: Yes, absolutely. And how is it up in Canada?
1: Listen, we have been going through, this has been a real interesting time. You know, we talk about athlete management. This has been one of those challenging times. We had some triathletes just competing here this last weekend. And we are just coming on to the tail end of a historical heat wave. And, you know, those are one of those things you just can't plan for in your, you know, in your training plan, your annual planning. It's one of those things you have to react to. Uh, but as we get back to sport here post-COVID, uh, we've been throwing another curveball, which, of course, is this historical heat wave we're going through up here. You know, half of our province right now is on fire, for crying out loud. So, you know, prayers for everybody who's affected by the wildfires. But this heat has been just a, a really challenging time for our athletes as as we sort of get through this thing. So, you know, all of these variables, you know, we react to all the time. but that's what we're sort of dealing with right now here up north
0: how about from an athletic standpoint in baseball we talked a little bit just briefly off there but what are you guys seeing coming in and what are your expectations for this season that's now kind of our first regular season back here
1: yeah well you know there's, there's a couple layers to this question right one is the ground grassroots youth development side of things and that's that's an interesting phenomenon unto itself because we're still in unprecedented times I mean when anytime we miss a competitive season um, uh, it, it's it's a real challenge and it's not like we haven't had athletes who have either been injured or for whatever reason have missed missed the season as they rehab and get back into the sport but to have everybody miss an entire season creates an incredible well an incredible anomaly I guess and 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 uh, Oh, there's two sides to this coin. There, or coin. There's, a, there's an upside and there's a downside. And the downside, of course, is we've been thrown out of the regular ebb and flow of the competitive nature of baseball. And that is an issue unto itself. On the upside, however, I think if this downtime uh, was handled properly, this, this, this unprecedented you know stop in sports competition, um, there's a huge opportunity here. And Max, earlier in the year, you know, we were talking to uh, some of my uh, colleagues here and we're trying to sort of evaluate what the issues are going to be as everybody sort of wades through this, this unfamiliar territory that was COVID. Um, up here in Canada, uh, we, were in, we were shut down uh, from the ground up. I know there is areas in the U.S. as well that were under similar restrictions In other places it was a little more open and we watched all of those areas with great interest but for our athletes you know we looked at this downtime as an opportunity much like we frame it up for any of our injured athletes on the grassroots side we really tried to tap into this virtual world and this virtual sharing along the way to keep players engaged and you know focused in on their goals and objectives even for the young athletes and maybe even more so for them because you know, there weren't a lot of options outside of their sport. And and when you're a young athlete, we've all probably been there before, whether you're a musician, whether you're into drama or the performing arts, or whether you're an athlete, you know, you engage in an activity because that's something you love. And we know that those activities can become part of who you are. And when you lose that part of your identity, especially for our youth, man, that's a challenging time. So we were concerned on a number of levels. One, of course, on the developmental Uh, performance side, but two, on the mental health side as well. And I think everybody's quite aware of that. But immediately, as we sort of realized this COVID thing was going to drag on to something we just didn't expect, we tried to frame this up as a huge opportunity. And talking with some of the developmental scientists out there, we had some great conversations about this, you know, for the first time, well, it's in recorded, you know, recent history, we actually got away from the complexities and the pressures of Overscheduled competitive competitive schedules, right? And with that, we could probably um, speculate there's going to be some interesting things happening. One, kids aren't going to be all uh, overwhelmed with with schedules where they're going to school, they're playing a sport, maybe working on private lessons or playing two game two two teams or multiple sports. And and three, they're going to get into maybe things they haven't done before, which is potentially another fantastic opportunity. So when we looked at it all, we said, you know, if we frame this up properly for our youth grassroots development athletes, um, there's an incredible opportunity here to attack things on the athletic side, but also on the technical tactical side, that could really, really bode well on the other side. And we're starting to see that now as we climb out of this COVID madness, and we called it the technical advantage. If coaches and programs took advantage of this time to attack certain things to make individual athletes better at their sport or even their position within sport, we're predicting we're gonna see a massive bump in the skill level of athletes as, as we get back into it. Now on the other side, on the downside of course, what are what are gonna be the, what's gonna be the implications of missing a competitive season? Well that applies probably more to our older athletes who are fairly polished in terms of their skill set, but now are trying to learn their trade in the competitive setting. So that's a different one. You know, our athletes who are training to train or competing, training to compete. um, These athletes, it's a little different story because now we all know there's no access to the environment they need to really push their skill set forward. So I think for our grassroots development players, Max, um, it was a huge opportunity. I think if we capitalized on that, I'm really excited to see how everybody responds as we started off here. And so far, so good. On the older side, seniors in high school, the kids who are looking at college scholarships or signing pro for the first time. Missing that window of opportunity, we're still trying to wage and, and measure the implications there. For our minor league players who missed an entire competitive season, you know what's it going to look like transitioning into the, the competitive world again? Because we all know it, that you can get better at the game of baseball without competition but you can't learn your craft unless you're competing. And that's one of the glorious things of the baseball sort of environment out there at the professional level. Anyway, you've got these levels of development that are so critically important. So we're watching that with great interest. And then at the pro level, I think, you know, the one thing that we're really, really focusing on is the injury rates. And through the first couple of months of the major league season, we kind of got an indication of the concerns there. Now that's a little bit layered, but we're watching that with great interest. And now, as we sort of enter the mid-season of the professional, uh, um, or sorry, the midpoint of the professional season, we're really, really going to start watching our athletes to see how they survive or deal with now this this, this normal-length season. So a bunch of different layers there. It's a, it's a big question. But so far, Max, so 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 far so good on our end.
0: Okay, I like I like there. I like your analysis there. There are multiple layers to this problem. When we look at it from our end and working with so many injured athletes, what we're starting to notice is the biggest problems come for those guys that were injured for what, 2019, missed almost all of 2020, and for the guys that got a little bit of 2020, great. And then now they're coming back for 2021, and they've essentially missed two competitive seasons, and they're trying to come back into a high level of baseball. I think you're spot on with those younger level athletes who are just kind of learning the game a little bit and they're starting to get into maybe some of the skills that they need to develop in the game. Absolutely. They could utilize more practice because they're really bogged down in the development a lot of times, in my estimation, by too many games and not enough time where they're actually having focused practice. When we look at those higher level guys, we are seeing where maybe the... Competition is more important than for those younger guys, especially for guys that have already been out because of injury or those guys that were kind of on the border of maybe making a team. They were a free agent, and now they've worked their way into a spot, but that spot has just become much more competitive, and they haven't had that previous season to really prove their worth, if you will.
1: Yeah. No, no. I, I think they're I bang on. And the other – you know, those injured guys are now missing two competitive seasons – you know that's a real challenge again because you you really can't you can't replace the competition right and you know as much as we work to prepare our players for spring training for example even on a normal ebb and flow of a of a competitive season we all know that when you start getting into games spring spring training and, and into the season there's nothing like it that competition adds that extra stress that you just really can't calculate in in training. So, so that, is a, that is a factor for sure. And I think that um, it, it kind of reminds me of those players that we see, the international players, for example, that come from maybe non-baseball type countries, our European players or African players, or even some of the Canadian guys who grew up in, in, in the cold winter or the northern, northern United States as well. You know, they're, not playing, they're not playing baseball year-round because they can't. But um, they're indoors, working on things that make them better athletes. Whether it's playing another sport or whether they're a little bit older and focusing on things for their game, uh, where the southern players in the southern hemisphere—you know—we talk about Brazil or South America or even in the southern states—they're pretty much playing year-round. Well, when we go to draft those players and we see those players from the northern areas come into come into the game, they're incredibly talented. There's no question about it. But we often have these conversations around their game sense and their game knowledge. They haven't played as many games. And that's where organizations, I think, that, that do get it, colleges, high school academies, elite academies, or certainly in professional ball, the organizations that understand that competitive deficit, perhaps, um, really maybe handle those players differently. You know, maybe easing them into a little bit more competition or making sure they get the competition they need to really learn their craft. And that's, Max, one of the things that I just really love about the professional baseball world, the layers of development that has changed drastically with this uh, minor league contraction. Uh, Again, another unbelievable real-life human experiment going on here that we'll watch for the next five years to see what the implications are. But now that's changed a little bit. So I I think there's a massive, massive opportunity for these independent leagues that are out there and even some of these... Um, um, elite academies to help players, you know, get that competitive volume in before they're ready for the pros. It is a landscape that is in such a state of flux with COVID, uh, the changes in, in the high performance pathways with Major League Baseball, uh, the shift towards more college, but this opportunity in independent baseball now we've never seen before. So, so it's an interesting time.
0: You'll have to enlighten me a little bit with regards to how Canada handles some of these things. I just spoke with uh, Martijn Nyoff on, I guess, our last published podcast here, who's with Dutch Baseball, and they have a really cool system where they have these developing athletes, high school, middle middle school-aged kids that are coming in, they're training at the facility, they're able to stay at home for some of them. Some of them, they actually live on site there and they have a structured program where they're doing school, they're doing their strength and conditioning, they're doing all of these things. We don't have anything like that in the United States. And I know they had some different um, restrictions and things going on in the Scandinavian countries, and they didn't necessarily deal with all of the things that we did in the United States from uh, a governmental perspective. But looking at uh, kind of that development from the perspective of a structured approach where they're not playing as many games and they're doing a lot of inter-squad scrimmages versus what we're doing here in the United States where there's maybe not as much of a structured approach in terms of practice and development, but there's uh, a plethora of games being played for every team where they're playing 60, 70, 80, maybe even 100 games in a calendar year. Where do we find that balance in and I'm not even sure what you guys are doing necessarily in Canada. All I know is from the guys that I that I played with in college that were Canadian guys. So um, where do we kind of strike that balance between development and I guess performance and playing?
1: Yeah. No, interesting. Yeah, and that's a that's a fantastic question because you know all these different regions of the world are so so unique. You know, my first my first work with Major League Baseball, consulting with Major League Baseball in Europe was 2005 and that's when I met all the European guys and started, you know, helping them design their programs and the Dutch were, were very, very unique in their approach. And if you look at international baseball and what the Dutch have done, uh, especially in Martijn's program over there, a really, really interesting approach to athleticism for baseball. And again, that's a classic example of a group of, of athletes, baseball players that just don't have the competitive setting. So up here in Canada, uh, I think it. I think Canada is actually uh, very highly regarded in terms of their developmental systems, not just in baseball, but but in every sport. You know, internationally, if we look at the Winter Olympics, for example, you can look at Norway, who I think you know Norway, with a population of what five million, six, maybe nine million, whatever. It's a very small population. That country, dominating winter sports at the Olympic level. It is. Fascinating, man. Their approach. One thing that Canada started years and years ago, and this is sort of right at my at my time as a student at University of Calgary, was this whole concept of long term athlete development. And it's not that it was something new. It's just that I don't think it had ever been really structured and developed within a sport um, over time. So one of the things that Sport Canada did years and years ago, they invested, oh a really really lot of time effort and money into uh, the developmental pathways and the Vancouver Olympics actually really spurred this on you know getting that Vancouver Olympics was incredible for sport in Canada summer and winter across the board for development and the elite pathways you know uh, the development of the LTAD the long-term athlete development model I think was one of the breakthrough events in sport history and if you look at it now there, you'd be hard-pressed to find a sporting country that hasn't adopted or adapted the Canadian model in some way, shape, or form. Uh, the Dutch being one of them for sure. So, one of the things that happens up here in Canada, right, um, is the in the baseball world, is the country is so huge with with very small population. There's pockets of development everywhere, um, and there's not really um, there's not really an over an overseer uh, an oversight sort of organization baseball canada leads the way they provide support for coaching the coaching development pathways right alongside the athlete development pathways and it's worked worked very well and uh one of the cool things that's happened here in canada if you look at the one of the you know some of the numbers the number of players who have been drafted or signed pro or played in major leagues per capita i think we're one or two in history, in Major League history, for developing Major League players or professional players, which is fascinating if you consider, you know, our seasons up here. Well, one of the reasons is those seasons. You know, we talked with um, uh, Jamie Reed, who is the medical director for the Texas Rangers like, uh, a few years ago, and we're just talking about where injuries are happening in baseball. And it's very, very interesting to note, and you can Google and look at all the research, but athletes that are raised in the cold weather regions which kind of goes from the middle of the u.s right up through canada there's a lower rate of tommy john uh uh, surgeries or injuries tommy elbow injuries serious injuries in athletes that's interesting yeah they come from cold cold weather weather regions also if you look at the power hitters and the athletes that are typically you know more athletic they also come from the cold weather uh areas and it goes back to what you said max you know the kids down south they're playing baseball all year round and they don't really stop to prepare for the game they just keep on playing right where in the cold weather areas you have to you have to stop playing because you can't and we're starting to, and those numbers were very very prominent you know up until maybe 10 years ago then these indoor facilities started popping up and now baseball kids were playing baseball all year round. We're starting to see those numbers come to sort of an equilibrium a little bit. It's actually quite fascinating. And we often said those kids up north, they were weather protected because they couldn't play baseball year round. So, so one of the things that happens in Canada is just a result of, of you know, where we live, the geography. The cold weather forces us indoors to either play other sports. And if organizations and programs are smart, they are playing other sports. And the sort of implementation of the long-term athlete approach, which is focusing on certain areas of development for certain age groups, appropriate areas of development for certain age groups as they mature and grow and get game experience, has really, really been effective. One of the goals of the long-term athlete development program, um, believe it or not, and people get kind of, uh, I guess, fascinated by this, is the fact that, that system is not designed to produce high-performance athletes. It's just a process designed to help athletes at different age groups and different levels of learning um, really maximize their experiences so they'll enjoy sport and continue to play for life. Now, the beautiful spinoff of that is a a massive increase in the number of high-performance athletes that we get out of Canada. So there's a bunch of things that play up north here, and some of them aren't intentional. Some of them are. Um, But to finish off that story, one of the crown jewels um, that Canada has in terms of baseball, for for boys anyway, the the women's national program here is spectacular. So we have an incredible number of young girls and women playing the game which is spectacular but our junior national team I believe is probably the best baseball development program on the planet and hats off to everybody over there at Baseball Canada Greg Hamilton is the driver there uh, but that program if you are if you are ready at that age group you know that junior national if you're ready to play at that level of the game, that program provides you know 15 16 17 year old Canadian players who love the game. An experience that nobody else on the planet gets. And and that's a special thing that I really do believe has driven Canadian baseball forward. So uh, again, a bunch of different layers on that one as well.
0: Crush, you read my mind when you actually brought up the indoor facilities. And I remember indoor facilities were just starting to come around. Indoor baseball was just starting to come around when I was in probably sixth grade. And we played in an indoor winter league which was a lot of fun. We played maybe one night, two nights a week. It was a, it was a hoot. It was a ton of fun. But we also realized for the guys that were really looking to play at the next level, play varsity baseball, play in college, that it was there for fun. Right now, kind of the problem that I know you've identified, I'm seeing a lot of people are talking about is we have a we have a difficult time disconnecting from When we're going to have more of just, let's go out there and have fun. Let's get out there. Let's pick up some balls and have some fun, play some baseball compared to. These are really high competitive games where we're really going to try to win these games and we're going to stay in competition mode. And right now, what I'm starting to see is a lot of these kids go into these fall ball games series they go into their tournaments in the fall ball they go into their winter league where they're playing indoors here in Michigan and they're going into those games the same way they go into their high school games or the same way they go into their summer ball games which is that we need to win every game and and I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and play through a little bit of pain here to get out there on the field or you know these guys aren't going to get the opportunity to play because we have to win this tournament where that those games are really the, the ones that are meant for fun, and if we could change our perspective a little bit, um, maybe at a grassroots level, we could start to um, play those and still still piece in that developmental component at the same time, oh, especially for those are, kids that want to get out there.
1: You are preaching to the choir here, Max, man. I'm telling you right now, you are preaching to the choir for sure, and, and I agree with you 100%. You know, It's it's such an interesting time, and again, this goes to a deeper conversation about what developmental sport is really, really all about, but I could tell you this, you know, we have that that year-round capability now with all these indoor facilities, for those programs that really get athlete development, they're going to step away from that serious part of the game for a while, even for the elite pathway players. They need that time, as you said. Unstructured play is just so healthy, man. Letting athletes just figure stuff out on their own, and also giving them an exposure to other other experiences, which you know can be other sports. Some of these indoor programs now are getting really smart, and they're capitalizing on the off season, the opportunity. If a player is not going into you know winter sports, if they're not playing volleyball or basketball, or if they're not playing snow sports like you know if they're not playing ice hockey or something going skiing or whatever it might be. If they're a really dedicated baseball player, even if they're young, there's a massive opportunity right now for, for programs that get it to take that winter period away from the competitive season and maybe have a week of basketball or a week of soccer or a week of whatever game it might be that you can put together in your facility to, yes, still strategically work on development of the players, like you mentioned, but also get them away from the game, for crying out loud. Let the body recover. Again, one of the things we're seeing, and this takes us right into the conversation about the injury rates. We're seeing all-time high injury rates in in our sport, and especially most concerning in youth sport. I mean, if we look at Tommy John surgeries or UCL damage, it is at all-time highs down to 12-year-olds. And again, I read a study here not too long ago um, that mentioned that the uh, Tommy John and UCL correction or UCL injuries... It is one of the fastest growing injuries, but also one of the fastest growing medical procedures in North America. And that's on us, man. We are destroying kids. And Max, if you've listened to the show or people that might have heard me talk before, I say this with all seriousness. And and it's something I don't take lightly, but, but it's just everything's out there. It just—it's just so true. We are destroying more talent than we're creating, with the greatest of intentions, of course. Like nobody's out there to injure athletes. We're just so excited about, you know, getting athletes into these high-performance pathways or attacking uh, sport year-round in a competitive way that we're probably doing more damage. No, we're not. Probably, we are doing more damage uh, than good. No, it, from a holistic standpoint, there's an opportunity here to really, really make some changes. But when we're seeing Injury rates where they are at all levels, youth sport, collegiate and, and, and minor league pro sports, and even at the highest level of sport with all, somebody explained to me, with all the resources and all the intelligence and all the thinking, thinking that we've done out there, how is it possible that injury rates are at an all-time high? Well, it's actually, if you really just step back and look at the big picture, it's incredibly quite simple. We are mismanaging our athletes. Not at one point in their career, not just at the pros, not just at minor league or developmental elite sport, but through the grassroots development as well. Most of these injuries that, that you're dealing with right now and we're seeing in professional sport, they don't happen at the professional level. They've been fostering and building for years and years through, through youth development sport. That's where the damage is happening. So you know, conversations like this, Max, are incredibly important. We just have to start thinking long-term. And I think we'll, we'll, we'll eventually get to a place in terms of overall performance we've never been to before, which could be really exciting.
0: When we start to talk about long-term development and looking at each athlete, not just as the point they're at right now in time, but looking at where they're going to be in the future, talking about these younger kids, we start to bring up a talk on some training methods that are potentially risky, which is we're talking about, playing too much and and maybe not focusing on development which is another risky strategy but there's other risky strategies that we or we may or may not implement in the training setting where we're actually doing some strength and conditioning stuff that's like hey this kid maybe shouldn't be doing this we're throwing weighted baseballs for kids who probably shouldn't be throwing weighted baseballs or we're doing olympic style lifting for guys that don't have the requisite levels of ankle mobility or hip mobility, or you know, overhead uh, stability to be able to do those things, and we're starting to implement them for their performance gains, and we're neglecting things and we're leaving things on the table that we could be utilizing to get athletes either to that level to where they can actually handle a barbell in the way that we want to use it, or we have other th- avenues to get athletes to the level they want to get to with much safer methods. Where do where do you see that we're, I guess, leaving the most on the table, especially for athletes who are kind of in that interim where they're starting to get into the adolescent years, they're starting to get into high school, where are we leaving the most on table? And even for our, our higher-level athletes yeah. as well.
1: Yeah, no, that is a great question. And there's a lot of individual, uh, I guess, things they to, to consider there. But in general, uh, fundamental movement skills. There's, there's such a gap between where we hope our athletes are and where we're pushing them to and what they're able to do. And I think you hit the nail on the head there. Um, the rush to high performance, the the push, the urgency to do things that, you know, you might not be able to do. I'll just give you a little story here. It was a, This is actually a pretty relevant story, I think, to your conversation here. I was talking to a tennis coach here. This is about six months ago, may, may, yeah, about six months ago. And um, he has an incredibly talented young junior tennis player that he's working with. It's a young female, junior national type level. You know, a lot of attention on the world stage already. A, a ton of promise. And he was sitting down with the parents to sort of map out the next training phase, the next training year. And um, you know, the parents said something like, "Hey, you know, we want we want her training like Serena Williams. Let's go. Let's get her going." And, this is a young 14-year-old girl. And the coach said something really smart, Max. He just sort of sat back and said, okay, well, hold on. If if we train, if we if we train your daughter like Serena Williams right now, we'll probably do more harm than good. How about this? How about we go back to Serena Williams when she was 13 and 14 and we take an approach that Serena was taking when she was 13 and 14. And again, Serena and, and Venus are incredible anomalies, but the way they were handled and managed as youth credit to her, to the parents, Mr. Mr. Williams, um, they handled them very, very, the, the, the world T- tennis association wanted those girls on tour years before they actually arrived. And one of the things that, that, that stopped that from happening was Mr. Williams saying, hey, no, 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 they, they don't have the skill set to play at that level. So let's let them develop and get there. Let's get, let them get a, a professional skill set so they can have some success there. And it was a brilliant, brilliant move. And, of course, it paid off. But when we try to rush to an end result, man, that is risky business. I often say we're, 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 we're playing with fire here. And, of course, in the baseball game, it's the velocity, it's the race for velocity right now and it is truly a disaster inside of our game because velocity is not hard to, hard to get if we often say to our athletes if it's in there we will get it and 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 that's true that's that's not going to be a problem. however unfortunately if we try to force the point and try to get these athletes doing things they're not quite ready for we know we know what that leads to it leads to that that early breaking point where we're causing more damage. but getting to the point of it, You know, we've seen athletes who rush to get bigger and stronger, whether it's from, you know, the advice of a college coach or a recruiter, a scout, or, you know, just them looking at who's successful in the game. Um, The weight room is a very, very dangerous place to be. And I think you summed up really nicely when you talk about the Olympic lifting and introducing Olympic lifting to athletes that aren't ready for it. It can be way more damaging uh, than it is. And Olympic lifting, by the way, is an art unto itself. It is as technical as anything will do in the sport of baseball. And you have to treat it that way. And unfortunately, it doesn't get treated that way. But for me, one of the priorities for development, if we're really going to help athletes be successful in our game, we have to teach them, first and foremost, to be accomplished movers. If we can teach our athletes to be accomplished movers, to learn how to interact with the ground and transfer that ground reaction into performance, whatever it might be, running, fielding, hitting, or throwing, then now we're creating, uh, now we're creating um, a group of, of really talented movers who we then can apply strength training principles and developmental principles that they'll be able to, you know, adapt and assimilate into performance, if that makes sense. So for me personally, one of the biggest gaps that we're seeing out there is just fundamental movement skills, even at the professional level. We get athletes at the highest level of the game that can't run backwards properly for crying out loud. And I don't know how that's possible in this day and age, but running backwards is a fundamental movement skill. And if you teach a youth athlete how to run backwards, you've got to understand that running backwards with confidence, not seeing where you're going, using your your field of vision to guide you going backwards, that helps you move in every other plane of movement. As an example, one of the issues we're seeing this rush into, being, into strength and power is we're seeing a development of strength and power in athletes that don't move well. Max, what do you get when you have an athlete who's really strong and it doesn't move well? Well, you get a player that doesn't move well. But what happens when you take an athlete who has great fundamental awareness, body awareness, and movement skills, and then you make them strong and powerful down the road through the long-term approach, you get potential, right? I think it was
0: Gray Cook that said, don't layer strength on dysfunction. And that's 100% true. Beautiful. When we talk about this movement problem and these guys that are at this high level and they really maybe don't move as well as they should move and they don't have some of these requisite movement qualities or physical literacy that we would expect them to have at that elite level a lot of times those are the guys that could kind of get by their whole life with just the pure athleticism and power that they innately had and now they're at a level where they're competing with other guys that we're just like them, and they have to find that, that little edge. And sometimes they resort to things that they're probably not ready for, and sometimes we see them kind of find someone like yourself who's doing things the right way and is able to get them to a level that maybe they didn't even know they could necessarily get to with hard work.
1: Yeah, and that's the physical side. On the mental side and this, you know, the self-perception side, that's a whole other issue. And you, know, you really do look at the numbers. Um The number of late developers who uh, make, or or let's put it this way, the the players who make up elite sport, if you look at who was an early developer and who was a late developer, the majority of high-performance athletes, if you really broke it down, the majority of them are probably late developers, athletes that showed no promise for elite performance through those critical early 12, 13, 14, 15 years of age. So what happens? Two, two, Two big questions come out of that. What happens to those high performers that were there, right? And what happens to those ones? And the second question is, how do these late performers all of a sudden become the best in the world? Well, and again, you know, we kind of answer our own question there. And what you said was just beautiful. You know, these athletes who are always good just because for whatever reason they were wired properly or they had incredible experiences through their development or whatever it might be, they've never had to really work hard to achieve in sport, when they when the sport catches up to them, a lot of them have a mental challenge, a self-perception challenge, maybe even a pride or ego challenge as they're maybe not as talented or perceived as talented as everybody thought they were. And one, they they, they get a little self-conscious and they walk away because they don't wanna be embarrassed. Or two, they've never really truly learned how to learn. We know that these late developers, the ones who stuck with it and persevered, they have some kind of work ethic, but they've had to battle through hardships and they've actually had to learn how to learn, learn from failures really well, also learn from successes very well. So if you're a coach out there who's coaching really talented players, you have an incredible responsibility to keep pushing those players to places where they're uncomfortable. And, you know, we've, you've had this conversation on the show before, but we also have a responsibility for those late developers to be late developers to be incredibly patient. And not rule them out because they're not succeeding right now. Because at the end of the day, those late developers are probably going to be the ones that go on to achieve high performance in sport. And that goes that 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 theory and principle goes uh, for, for anywhere humans are trying to achieve and get better. That is not exclusive to sport at all. So there's a psychology side to this as well. But on the physical side, yes, absolutely, we have to. We have to make sure that we're challenging our top performers, our young top performers, so they can learn how to learn because there's just a matter of time until the sport catches up with them. And an interesting note on that, you know, even some some of these guys do make it to professional sports. They're just so good that it's inevitable they're going to get there with their mindset, their approach, of course, their physical abilities. But when we take those elite performers, whether it's NHL players, pro football players, certainly our major league baseball players, and we teach them some of these fundamental movement skills that they've never been taught before, oh man, does it get awesome really quick. Because they've got such a high level of talent, and these athletes, you know, if you frame it upright where they're not embarrassed to look foolish and things that should be simple, if you can get them to learn that, they assimilate it very well into performance. And we've taken 10-year veterans of a sport, and we've taken them to levels they never dreamed of going. And, Max, I'm not going
0: to lie to you, that's a lot of fun. Oh, yeah, especially when you get that kid in there who's maybe a college kid who really doesn't even know how to skip properly, and he's a college pitcher or doesn't know how to skip laterally, and then you get him doing some different drills. And it's one of the things that one of the guys who actually we brought on here to work with some of our athletes, uh, Austin Macias, uh, probably a year and a half ago brought him in, He's getting his doctorate in physical therapy and this was kind of his first job in sports performance and he had done some education stuff and looked at things and said, you could be teaching them some more movement and working on things and and strategically implementing exercise in the warm-up that's going to give them more of these skills and you don't have to have so much of this time after where you're working on things, or you don't have to have so many things that you're working on in another setting, you could actually be integrating it into your warm-up a little better, and then you start to parse out. Okay, well, this kid, he may have a little more difficulty when we actually have him throw, and we're trying to work on the way that he throws because he's having a difficult time integrating these things. We may have to be a little more patient, as you said. With this guy, and maybe with this athlete, we were able to identify how we can cue them a little bit differently to get them to move better, and we identified that in their warm-up. So we're able to accomplish a lot more in the same amount of time.
1: Oh, my goodness. Hey, for every coach out there, and this is a, this is a passion of mine, that warm-up period, Max, oh, gosh, you're just so beautiful, man. That warm-up period might be one of the most valuable pieces of time you ever have with your athletes if you can turn that warm up period activation period preparation whatever you call it if you can take that dynamic that dynamic ready sort of readiness you know period of time that you have whether you're working with young kids or even our pro guys and turn it into a learning A learning event every single day challenging them with different movements but also maybe reminding them of the importance of ground contact and interacting with the ground showing them how to accelerate properly decelerate properly how to apply force to move laterally you keep doing that for you know seven whatever your whatever your warm for little kids up to our pro guys whether you have 10 minute warm-up period or whether you have 45 minutes to an hour whatever you're doing if you can turn that into a, a learning a learning period, over time it accelerates development. And not only that, for the coaches that don't have resources like a strength coach or a, or a performance specialist with them, um, the payoff is exponential. It's absolutely exponential. And and you know not only from the standpoint of performance, but also injury prevention, as we've seen. You know we know these these. The, the approach for dynamic movement, range of motion, orientated uh, warm-ups has not only helped athletes become more athletic day-to-day inside of that little period. It also has had a dramatic impact on reducing risk of injury, which is incredible. On top of it all, you're creating more coachable players for yourself. Every single coach on the planet in every sport is limited. No matter how good they are and how well they can coach and and teach a sport or the technical, tactical side of the game, they're limited by the athletic abilities of their athletes. And unfortunately, we don't spend enough time, in my opinion, developing those athletic traits that will eventually lead to performance outcomes. Whether a person, whether a person, goes down that high-performance pathway, chooses to go down that high-performance pathway, or whether they just continue to play sport for life. They're as important in both of those avenues. Absolutely. Um, but it's a critical part of the game that we're just ignoring, Max.
0: I think with people like yourself, the issue here is starting to get illuminated and people are starting to find very good solutions. I have spoke with Zach DeChant on the channel, and he talks about how we need to really prioritize movement, especially in the setting that he's in, in university athletics, where we've spent so much time on the power and strength aspects, where a lot of times we had a football strength and conditioning coach that was applying the same activities and exercises to the baseball team. And we ended up with maybe some additional injuries and mismanagement, as we've talked about extensively here And now that we're starting to prioritize movement, we're starting to see that 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 not only is applicable to our throwing athletes, but it's applicable to athletes as a whole, regardless of the sport that they're in. And I know you have a lot of experience in a variety of sports. Maybe you could touch on that and how there's an interplay between the things we want to develop here and the things that we are able to carry over into another sport.
1: Yeah, that, 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 that... That sport transfer, that skill set transfer, or that athletic transfer, that talent transfer we we refer to it as, um, is really critically important. And from a big picture, that's something that we need to uh, talk about more, Max, especially with our developmental coaches, you know, where we want our athletes playing multiple sports. There are things in baseball that can help uh, the game of hockey. And again, here's another, going back to our conversation of what's happening in Canada, um, there's an incredible movement now to uh, share within the sporting associations. So, for example, Hockey Canada has come up with a list of the six best off-season sports for hockey players and the six best off-season sports for goaltenders, if you're a goaltender. Baseball Canada has done the same. Hey, if you're a baseball player, here's four great sports you should be playing in the off-season, right? So we've got that kind of cool, cool uh, uh, collaboration going. But in terms of, of learning movement, oh man, I'm telling you, I had a chance and I've worked with uh, some of um, our our top squash players over the years. And these athletes are, are truly, truly incredible. I think squash might be, for me personally, one of the most rewarding sports to train an athlete for because it is fast and furious. It is incredibly fatiguing. The reaction times are like nothing else on the planet. It's an incredible, an incredible sport. Here's an interesting conversation, Max, I had with one of my athletes. He was a hockey player and a baseball player growing up. So he was a team athlete guy when he was growing up. And I asked him one day, hey, what what drew you to squash? What drew you to sort of this individual sport, you know, if you were a team team player all of your life? And he goes, it's interesting because, you know, I loved hockey. I loved playing with the guys. I loved the game. He was a great hockey player. He goes. I also loved baseball. He said. I, I loved. I just loved the challenges of the game. He says. But but you know, when I got a little bit older, the one thing I didn't like was that my fate was in somebody else's hands. He goes. I said. I just wanted to be in control of where I was going and what was going to happen. He goes. I just. He said. I found that in an individual sport. And he golfed a little, but his dad played squash and he loved squash, so he went on to play squash and you know made it up to the national level, played on the world stage. So that's an interesting concept the attitude and the mentality of the players has a lot to do with how you train them right and these experiences through youth youth in the developmental pathways not only for development inside of a sport but to give an athlete a perspective of what they're going to be good at right so that's that's sort of one of the layers uh, in terms of how we decide what we're going to be doing with kids in terms of the talent transfer between sport and, and training movement there are fundamental movement skills that have to be taught. It doesn't matter whether we're working with our, our professional football players out on the, in the stadium, or if we're on dry land with our NHL hockey players, or if we're working with our major league uh, baseball players. There are fundamental movement skills that we have to check off before we can move on. Then, once those fundamentals are, 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 are accomplished, And as an example, a fundamental might be, okay, accelerating properly, learning, you know, looking at the acceleration patterns and again, not to get technical because for the coaches out there that don't, you don't have to know sports science to really get a handle on this stuff, but you want your kids to learn how to accelerate properly. And maybe even more importantly, decelerate properly with a proper body position. You want them to be able to transition from forwards to backwards properly. You want them to be able to change directors. First of all, move in one direction laterally with efficiency, and you know with with a skill set. I mean, because it is a skilled movement, you can increase athleticism by teaching athletes how to move in multiple directions, changing from changing directions laterally from side to side. So all these fundamental movement skills are critically important, and then you start incorporating upper body movements with lower body movements, right? You start connecting that gap and for our athletes, for example, we really do challenge them for our younger developing athletes. We'll really start off teaching them interaction with the ground. Then depending on the sport and we do this for every sport, so don't get me wrong, but you know, as we get more advanced, we'll take our athletes and we'll divide them in half. We'll get our athletes starting to be aware of their lower body independent of their upper body and their upper body independent of their lower body. So while their lower body might be challenged with, with some kind of, 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 maybe obstacle or some kind of movement pattern, they have to do something totally unnatural and controlled with their upper body, or as their lower body's moving in a certain way, they have to control and do something totally out of character with their upper body. So we teach them to divide their lower and upper body. For our advanced athletes, when we start getting to elite high school and those kids making the leap to collegiate sports or from collegiate sport to pro sport, if the athlete is ready, we start dividing them into thirds the lower body, ground based activity, which is the cri- most critical thing in sport, and then the mid body, the transfer, the core, and how important that is to connect the ground with the upper body, and then the upper body, whether it's throwing, hitting getting a volleyball, whatever it might be, controlling and protecting your vision is a classic example. We'll we'll start breaking our advanced athletes into thirds. When you start getting to a point where we're breaking your body into thirds in terms of movement patterns, you're in a pretty special place. But that's where you can really push the limits of human performance. And then, and only then, can you purposefully attack issues or, or performance issues or performance challenges with some kind of maybe resistance training or supplemental training, whether it's the weight room, cords, you know, whether it's you know, vision training, whatever it might be. But until those movement patterns are established, then, you know, we don't really focus on that, that, that heavy emphasis on, on strength development side. That is a, I say this, off, I, I say it like this, Max. I say, look, the only reason we would implement a strength training regime or an exercise is to help ultimately help you become a better mover. In injury, prefer posture, setup, range of motion. That's all part of it. But to help you become a better mover, unfortunately, people have this mindset of getting strong to move better. You have to you have to learn how to move better so you can apply that strength and power in a way that's purposeful. So you know when we talk about when we talk about the movement sport by sport, we've got these fundamentals. That have to be taught I don't care you could come in blind I don't even want to know what sport you play if you haven't checked these boxes off none of that matters because until you do this well it doesn't matter we can't attack a baseball we can't attack volleyball movements we can't attack stride on the ice whether you're a speed skater or a figure skater or whether you're a hockey player it doesn't matter if you're a quarterback those drop back steps don't mean a damn thing to us if you can't check these boxes so there's a point of like general fundamentals that have to be addressed, and then you can attack the sport performance. And that's where the sport performance team comes in. That's when that's when the fun happens because now you start talking to the coaching staff. Hey, what's the deficit here? Where can we help this player? Or, or what, what issues do you have with this player that's holding him back in terms of a technical, tactical side? And that's a never-ending story, and it's a beautiful thing once you get there.
0: Just like that kid who maybe does not – possess the posture or the postural control or the mobility, especially a lot of these kids nowadays with their flexibility have been sitting in a chair all day at school and they're going home and playing video games and now they want to go and play their baseball tournament on the weekend. They can't even get into a proper fielding position and maintain that proper fielding position for a few seconds. With those kids, just like you're saying here, it's about developing those maybe foundational pillars, that are going to allow them to benefit maximally from their skill-specific or sport-specific training. Oh,
1: Max, you said it right, man. And I tell you what, that's one of the glories of that cool down or that warm up or that cool down uh, session inside of your inside of your practice plan. You know, you might if you're if you're a volunteer coach coaching kids 10, 11, 12 years old, you might only have them three times a week. You know, two practices in a game, but that's three that's three exposures to them uh, a week, where you can either be attacking movement. Also, posture exercises simple in, your, in, in your warm-up. And again, you don't need to be an exercise, science to, exercise scientist to, to do this stuff. You do need to know what to do, though. So, and that's one of the gaps, I think, that we have between the, the, the high-performance science side and the application side. We need to support our coaches more. That posture is something that we're incredibly concerned about. You know, in our MLB academies around the world, we do just a really quick sort of postural assessment, functional movement screen of all the athletes that we intake into our academies. And, and the, the MLB work has been absolutely fascinating for me, you know, going to Africa and these uh, Europe for sure and South America, these areas where they have a different approach or maybe baseball is not, a, 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 not even on the radar in terms of a major sport. But one thing that we're seeing across the board it doesn't matter what corner of the world you're from is we're seeing a change in just natural just natural postures We're looking at the first generation max of kids who have grown up with the devices right who've grown up with these things you know the the cell phones and the tablets and I can tell you right now you can you can go, you can come back one day and look at our archives from the 1980s up until now and you will see, you will see a historical change in the postures we're seeing in our athletes. You know, and the number one concern is, of course, the upper upper back, the cervical side, and this protrusion of, and it is happening right now as kids are growing up with their devices. You know, we're seeing this this chin this chin forward position, right? And you know, all, you know, I used to go to I used to go to see my grandma in the old age home, and I was just amazed by how all the people would be hunched over this way. One of of the most important parts of all of our programs, from youth all the way up, is this posterior chain. The backside, the backside of the body is so important. Getting that backside nice and strong so everything out here can happen properly. We can do that in our warm-ups and our cool-downs. But we're looking at a generation where we are fighting almost an unbeatable opponent. It's an invisible, unbeatable opponent. And it's this right here. They're on their computers, they're on their devices more than anything else. That they do and it's literally changing the human posture forward and So we almost have a responsibility inside of sport if sport is going to be our area of influence we I believe have a responsibility to do something to actually correct that not for sport performance just for the health, health of our youth you know and so we're seeing it to the point where athletes can't perform we know if you put your chin forward your shoulders don't function properly your core cannot function properly your hips and your legs cannot function properly. Cannot function properly and you're, therefore your interaction with the ground in any skill you're trying to execute is nowhere near where it could be. So we've got a monster we're up against in terms of that. I call it a TAP posture, TAP a technology adapted posture. There's lots of names out there for it, but it's a real thing, man. It's a real thing. I didn't know what to call it, but I'm as I'm going through our archives looking at our players going What is going on here? One, very particular injuries we're seeing in our throwing athletes. Why? Well, mismanagement, year-round sport, all those conversations have happened. But I'm telling you, there's something that we need to consider when we start looking at this body position, this posture that we're creating with technology here. Because it's influencing our athletes in ways that I don't think we really truly appreciate enough. So, You know, we have all these things that we need to address, and you're so right, posture is one of our top five priorities for human performance, and and rightfully so. Range of motion and posture is critical. And again, I'll just say it one more time, I believe it's our responsibility. We need to give youth volunteer moms and dads the tools they need to help offset this inside of sport. And again, you know, the, the glorious thing about that pathway is going to be not that we're intentionally trying to create high performers. It's just going to be a great spinoff of a, of a really good system. But I, unfortunately, I, I believe our system's broken in more ways than we can even imagine.
0: Listen, crush. This has been phenomenal. Is there one thing that you want to leave the audience with one? We've talked a lot about perspective here, really perspective on sports training development for baseball players, for throwing athletes in following that sequence with perspective and, and how we should really look at this uh, multivariate problem, uh, multidimensional problem, what's one thing we could leave the audience with and maybe giving them a little bit of altered perspective on, on these uh, numerous uh, problems and then solutions that we're currently coming up with.
1: Yeah, and I think we go, can go full circle, Max, to that layered approach that we have. You know, what is youth sport all about? Once the athletes get into that elite pathway, what is it all about? And then once they start entering that sort of serious college and professional realm, what is it all about? And and there's one word that I just think we've kind of forgotten. You've alluded to it a little bit here today, but fun. Fun, man. Getting better is fun. You know, it shouldn't be pressure. We shouldn't be pressure. We shouldn't be trying to do things we're not ready to do. But I really think we've almost all but eliminated fun. And I'm talking from the big picture here. There are programs and coaches out there they just do a great job. And again, you know, talking to the pro guys, <laughs> hey, a little word of caution. You got to be careful how you define fun, right? I mean, hey, there's a lot of ways to define fun. But listen, um, that, would be, that would be the one thing I would say. Look, you know, if you go back to, there's some been some great work done here. But if you ever want to just get a perspective of why kids play sport, listen, I'll just say this, Max. You know, I'm, thanks for having me on. I've really, really enjoyed the opportunity to talk. But um, for me, the elite guys are well taken care of. They've survived an incredibly broken system. They've gotten there, and they're in good hands for the most part, right? I mean, it's still a competitive dog-eat-dog world up there, but but there's some really, really great things going on in the high levels of sport. Olympic, national sport, professional sport, even elite collegiate sport. There's good things going on. We still have a ways to go, but there's great things going on. For me, I'm going to tell you, I am more passionate than ever right now about the grassroot development, the, that, that six-year-old up to 15, 16, that, that massive group that we just need to take care of. One for childhood obesity, diabetes, sport, could be such a huge, huge platform for, for pushing that forward. But we've really, with the greatest of intentions, I think, gotten away from what's most important for driving that whole system and what's most important for the for the participants, the kids inside that system, it's fun, fun. So for me, that would be probably, Max, outside of everything else we talk about, none of this performance talk even matters if the kids don't have interest in what they're doing. It it doesn't matter. So let's get them passionate about it. Let's get them, man, wanting to be there. Part of that is getting, and then we can apply our craft and help them just do things that they've never done before. And not only will it impact their ability to play the game and hopefully maybe play for life. Yes, increase the number of high performers coming out of any developmental model. But think about the self-esteem. Going home and telling mom and dad, man, I hit that ball so hard up the middle. You wouldn't believe what I did today. Or, man, I caught a ball in my backhand and we turned a double play today. We look like a major league infield. Me and Bob, my buddy Bobby on second base. You know, oh, God, I get goosebumps just thinking about the kids that go home going, man, or the kids who have had a crappy day. Man, I was garbage today. But the coach that frames that up, hey, let's learn from them. Great. The the, the worst day that you've had is probably the best day that you've had if you understand why it happened, right? So that's a conversation for another day, but but that would be it, man. Sort of draw that out, but it's a... Uh, I think it's an important conversation, fun, fun factor. Why do kids play? To have fun. Let's make it fun.
0: Perfect. Perfect. Thanks for coming on, Crush. Where can people find you, follow you online, subscribe to you, all of those great things?
1: Yeah, you can go to crushperformance.com. That's Crush with a K, Max. The podcast is there, newsletter. We've got a brand new website coming that we're really, really excited about. Hopefully uh, this fall it's going to be ready to go. Um, so you can get our radio show, the podcast, our, our newsletter, and all the links to great, great, great resources like yours and, and everything that we believe in anyway. So we're here just to help people out and get people thinking about maybe things they haven't thought about. And, you know, over the years, uh, we've just been lucky enough to get associated and connected with some of the most incredible people in the world. So um, it's incredible to see how those people want to share as well. So that's kind of what it is. It's a conduit of just sharing and performance, man.
0: Absolutely. So check Jeff Crushell out on his website there. Make sure to subscribe to this channel if you're watching on YouTube. Subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcast platform you're on. And just one special thanks to Peter Caliendo for connecting me with Jeff Crushell here. Crush, this has been an awesome podcast. Thanks again for coming on. Uh,
1: thanks, Max. Really appreciate it.